The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the after show. This is where we unpack all the commentary you hear in our regular podcast. I'm Marin Somerset Webb. This week, John Stepek, senior reporter at Bloomberg, author of the Daily Money Distilled newsletter, joins me to discuss my conversation with Jonathan Asante, fund manager at Jakara Investments. Jonathan started with Jakara Investments this year after taking a short break from the industry in 2019. Before that, he worked at Stewart Investors for 15 years, and I've been watching his career for some time. John, I don't think you've ever met Jonathan, and because uh, he was, uh, you know, I met him in uh, Edinburgh a few times. I'm not sure you ever did. What did you think about that interview? Yeah, I've never met him, but I thought that was great. That was a really thought-provoking one. Mm-hmm. Um, but what thoughts were provoked? <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's EMs like emerging markets are something that sort of have. I don't know what you think, but it feels as if they've almost vanished off the radar in a lot of ways when talking about um, you know markets. I mean, obviously that's partly because the US has sucked up basically all of the oxygen and all of the money, but it is also because obviously the what he said about governance um, is absolutely correct, and it's interesting that they were onto that really quite early by the sounds of it. You know, obviously China becoming more authoritarian is the, the kind of big one. But, you know, things that he pointed out, like Turkey kind of, you know, going off the rails somewhat when it comes to governance. You know, I, I thought that was a really interesting point. And also just emphasising that point about governance is something that certainly we kind of forgot as developed market investors during the 90s and early 2000s because there was that whole period where everyone was saying, yeah, it's all fine. You can stick as much money as you want in Russia. Capitalism is going to win out anyway. And then, of course, you find out, well, actually, no, um, that's that's not how things work in the real world. Um, and the person who is able to make the laws actually has much more power than the markets do. Yeah, I mean, I was interested in that as well. And I was particularly uh, pleased that he talked about it like that, because one of the things that I know has always driven you mad and has always driven me mad is this idea that if you see economic growth in a country, if you see the GDP numbers going up, you're automatically going to see the stock market going up as well. And there's decades of evidence to show us that that isn't true. But people still think it is. And they still write those articles going, oh, look, this country's getting richer. Therefore, you should buy a stock market. Yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, the best example of that is actually, again, sort of ones that came up in the conversation with China versus India. Mm, I mean, mm. mean, far better putting your money in the Indian stock market at almost any point, really, in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in terms of the, the country that has uh, developed the most economically and, you know, in, in certain metrics improved the lives of, of its own citizens more, then that would, you'd have to say that was China. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but India has, has produced by far the best shareholder returns over that period. 
and I suppose the, the other point, it's not just about the governance and it's not just about the government, it's also about the valuations where things start. And whenever I write articles about, look, economic growth is not the same as stock market growth, I tend to start with valuations. But next time I do it, I'm going to think more about what Jonathan said and start with, with governance, actually. I think Russia is the very obvious one on that front. It's like you you can have as many as you know. It's often been the cheapest market in the world, and there's mm. often been points where, you know, I would say, it, despite my kind of like long scepticism of it, there have been points where I've thought that is so cheap. Surely, yeah. to goodness, you know, I should stick some money in it. And of course, yeah. you'd be able. To, you, if you were a trading person, you could have made a lot of money in it, but. You know, and now that it's kind of like a pariah state and your capital's basically stuck there if it was there. And I think the risk is that, you know, it's like you keep reading about people who keep saying, oh, yeah, no, China is looking cheap and, you know, maybe we should stick some money in just now. And you're thinking, well, I don't really see how this mentality can stand side by side when there's articles on Bloomberg about how China could take over Taiwan. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. you're kind of like if you if China invades Taiwan, what, what do you think is going to happen to any money you've invested in any Chinese stock? Yeah. Just just have a wild guess. And particularly you know. when you don't own those stocks outright. Of well, exactly. You own them via various mechanisms. But I, I just want John before we go any further, I want listeners who haven't known you and I for a long time to know what you're doing here, right? I mean, you know, you think that there are new listeners out here and, and what you're saying is completely innocent and I'm the only one who's picking it up. But look, listeners, okay? John always said, Russia will never be cheap enough. You should never buy Russia. There's too much that could go wrong. The geopolitical risk is too high. The government is too awful, etc. And I said, sometimes it's cheap enough. And there was a point when I wrote a column saying, Russia is now so cheap, it's pretty much discounting a return to communism or World War III, and that's not going to happen. So I suggested people bought Russian equities. I was completely wrong. And what John's doing here is just letting you know that he was right. <laughs> is that right, John? The entire last five minutes have been a sort of very sophisticated type of audio trolling of me. Well, uh, it's just a. Uh... 99% of the time, you're right when we disagree. So I just need to juice up the 1% of the time that I was right. <laughs> anyway, listen, our personal conflicts aside, the one, the, one of the many things that I thought was very interesting in my conversation with Jonathan was his approach to ESG. And mm. I was really interested in the way that he looked at luxury goods companies. And he looked at it in terms of not the way they run their businesses, and you could talk about that, but, but the, the clients that they have and where the money that their clients have come from. And he talked about being concerned about investing in the big luxury goods companies because their clients represent capital flight from countries that really should be using their cash to improve the lives of their populations in general rather than nicking it by, by handbags. And I thought that was really interesting because it was, I think, a correct way to look at ESG. This isn't about box ticking. This is about thoughtfulness. We found it very difficult. And again, we haven't had much chance to invest in them. We found it very difficult to invest over the years in luxury goods companies. And that's an even grayer area. And on the one hand, it's very aspirational and, uh, you know, people striving for material to gain pleasure for material. On the other hand, we have a, we associate it and we have some evidence that it's also linked to 
political economies where an elite is stealing capital flight. Well, it comes back, as you said, to money not being shared. And, you know, ending up in London or Singapore. And it's interesting, the Singapore government, I think, is thinking about this now as well. And so what you're doing there is you're trying to weigh up a a number of grey areas. You know, one is is quite a positive sort of striving. Mm. The Mm. other is actually there's a lot of capital flight involved in the developing world in some of these goods. And that's going against what we're trying to invest in. Yeah, and that was really thoughtful. Because I, I was reading through the transcript and I saw you know, various other ones and then I saw luxury goods come up. And my immediate assumption was, okay, this is going to be something to do with the factories and where they make this stuff. Um, and it wasn't. It was, you know, you're right, it's absolutely, this is about kind of capital flight. And I thought, that's a really interesting way to look at it. It's also, it's really sophisticated and it's also only something that someone with genuine experience of emerging markets would would think of. Um, because the rest is sort of, you know, kind of, you know, sit there and think, well, you know, handbags, fancy handbags, what's, what's wrong with a fancy handbag except maybe you skinned an alligator to get it or something like that, I don't know. Um, so yeah, I thought that was, that was, uh, as you say, it kind of, that's, that's real ESG rather than box ticking. It's genuine thoughtfulness about both the, um, the S and the G in ESG and we don't come across that much. Um, also, I think of interest was going back to what you were saying about China and India, that it was India where he said, well, he, he doesn't like to pick countries. He's very clear in saying India is the place where he finds the most companies that, that fit fit their criteria at the moment. And we've tended to found, find more companies over the many years in India. And that's not that's because there are so many companies listed in India. It's not, The proportions are still quite low, but it's just that there are just so many. And the stock market has been allowed to evolve in a sort of vibrant way. Um, we would have hoped 20 years ago that Turkey would have gone the same way, but under different leadership, it hasn't. So that's a place where we find lots of companies. We can find a few in Latin America. That was interesting because people keep asking us, don't they? China or India, China or India. And uh, we tend to think, well, yeah, under the circs, India. Yeah. I mean, the frustrating thing about India is that it always looks expensive. And it's never not looked expensive, basically the whole time you and I have been covering it. And I think so. I suppose you... You probably just have to swallow that um, if it's, you know, something you want to look at. But also, obviously, it's another argument for active investment. And I don't know if maybe Jonathan was subtly making that point because he did say it's partly a function of the fact that India's just got, like, thousands of companies. And he says it's a small proportion of them that he's interested in. But because there are so many, that's actually still quite a big playing field, even though it's a tiny percentage. Um, so, yes, yeah, so maybe the lesson is if you... If you do want to go into emerging markets, it's a very good argument for using active rather than passive. Uh, well, it's, worth, it's worth mentioning, by the way, that uh, it is it is the case. Uh, there's a lot of pushback against this, obviously, but a lot of studies do show that outside of the US, active management does outperform. Not by much, not by much, but in the main, outside the US and particularly outside mega cap US, the uh, performance of active, active managers tends to be superior. So particularly in emerging markets, I do you think that if you're going, if you're choosing between passive and active, you may be a lot better off with active? Yeah, I, that was really interesting because I, so I don't know if we're talking about the same study, but it was something that um, someone uh, wrote up for the FT, and they were talking about why does active management persist? Mm-hmm. And yeah, absolutely, there was that point at an institutional level where you get to pay lower fees, then there is a even though it's, it's small, there's an outperformance for everything except for US large caps. 
Um, yeah, this is not the first study to show this. I've written about it several yeah. times over the years because you know frustrated active managers keep commissioning the same <laughs> research and getting the same result. Uh, but because so much active management is desperately trying to attempt to beat something they can't really beat, i.e., large cap America, people get this general idea that passive is better in every environment, and and, and it simply isn't. It simply isn't. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Anyway, on to uh, valuations. And I have pulled out for us the latest uh, valuation metric table from Schroeder's that you and I both like to look at. Thank you, Duncan. If you didn't listen to Duncan on our podcast a few weeks ago, go back, go back and listen to it. He's jolly good. And uh, emerging markets, as usual, come out on the cheaper side. So cyclically adjusted uh, PE, 21% below 15-year median. Forward PE, kind of bang on, trailing PE, kind of bang on, price to book, kind of bang on. So, you know, in the great scheme of things, it looks relatively cheap, particularly uh, compared to the US, which is still on a cape of 28, 16% above its usual level. And price to book, where it is on a uh, level of 4.1, 43% above its uh, historical level. I know, and you can argue that's all technology and, you know, they don't much book value, blah, blah, blah. But nonetheless, it does stand out. Uh, while I'm at it, I'll just tell you that uh, the other places that look cheap are the UK. Well done, the UK. Always cheap. Always winning on cheap. Always winning on cheap. Um, but cheapest cheapest of the large markets in uh, forward PE terms, 16% below. A little above in Cape. So, you know, that's a bit disappointing. Trailing PE still <laughs> still cheaper. Price of broke still cheap. America, super expensive across the board. You know, the Cape in the US is now double that of the US, of the UK. It's amazing, really. Yeah, who knows when when it will when it will adjust? But that's why we have diversified portfolios. That's why we have diversified portfolios. Now, at the end, last thing I want to talk about on Jonathan is that um, he went for gold. Bitcoin gold. He's very modern, Jonathan. Very thoughtful. He thought about it a bit, and then he went for gold, even though he doesn't feel a hundred percent comfortable with gold. You know, it's just not not his thing and he hasn't done quite what he, he would have thought it would do over the last couple of decades, etc. Although I'd say it is doing what it's supposed to do now. However, he would choose gold over Bitcoin definitely. And I didn't talk to him about it at the time, but I thought about it afterwards. I wondered if you talk to him about not just Bitcoin, but about cryptocurrencies in general, he would have a similar ESG feeling about them as he does about the big luxury goods companies in that you can't blame the providers, but an awful lot of the users aren't people you want to have supper with. Well, I mean, he did opt for cash and then kind of twisted his arm to choose Bitcoin or gold. But I think um, on... I mean, no, I think that's a really good point on Bitcoin. The only thing I guess I would say is that um, I think that Bitcoin probably beats handbags in terms of if you have to flee a country. And that is something that, again, an emerging market expert might actually, you know, consider. But yeah, no, there's no doubt that uh, a lot of Bitcoin usage um, and crypto usage in general is for nefarious stuff. And the question, and it's, I mean, it's certainly not ESG. I suppose the difference between Bitcoin and luxury goods is that Bitcoin's always had this "it's not ESG" thing hanging over it, whereas the idea that the luxury goods sector is um, ethically problematic because of what the goods are used for rather than how they're made is is a really interesting insight. Yeah. Um, the thing that I would have asked him if I'd known anything about it, and I might now ask people on our podcast, is a question someone asked me um, 
a, uh, an investment trust shareholder asked me at a lunch the other day. He said to me, um, what will happen if there is another Carrington event? Do you know what a Carrington event is? I saw you say this on Twitter and I Googled it. So <laughs> I yeah. know what it is now. <laughs> okay, the most intense ge geomagnetic storm in recorded history, uh, which peaked on the 2nd of September, 1859, during solar cycle 10. I've no idea what solar cycle 10 is, that's not my area. But nonetheless, it was incredibly beautiful. You can see the northern lights across the globe, apparently. But it knocked out every single telegraph station everywhere. So what happens if there is another huge solar storm like that? Uh, this is obviously hypothetical, but entirely possible. And it takes out pretty much everything. What is Bitcoin during a Carrington event? And that's why I would always choose gold. I think that's absolutely fair. Um, tricky thing is, though, you would have to, um, you'd have, probably have to have your gold. Well, okay, you probably, mm, I'm just trying to think. If it was I in said, a... I shouldn't spring this stuff on you, should I, John? Yeah, this, this... <laughs> no, I'm just thinking, so you, if there's a Carrington event and you had the gold, it's probably fine if you had the gold in a vault somewhere because that would be recorded non-electronically or at least it'd be some sort of paper trail somewhere, possibly. You just try to think. But, but you, well, the key point what is... What happened to all the share registers and all the rest of it as oh, well? Gone, 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 gone. Um, so maybe it's only the stuff on the blockchain that would still be there when everything came back on again. Um, <laughs> but it is one of those things that is a reminder that if you hold gold, you are really holding gold for you know to protect you against inflation, but in extremis, you're holding gold so that you can have it on your person in extremis. Mm. So is it a good idea to hold large amounts of, of, of gold digitally or in a vault, or should you just have a few sovereigns in your pocket all the time? There we go. Down a rabbit hole we've gone. I think we better stop that. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money, The After Show. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb, alongside John Stefik. It was produced by Samasadi. Additional editing by Blake Maple. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.